Hello and welcome. My name is Neil Campbell, and at the time of recording this podcast, it's a nice, crisp, cold, frosty, but sunny morning up here in Gateshead in the northeast of England. I'm an accredited counsellor, and I'm in my 27th year of counselling, and for more than 21 of those years, I have specialised in grief counselling, working with bereaved adults, young people and children. I'm also an experienced trainer, delivering a range of accredited training courses and workshops around aspects of bereavement and grief through the medium of the Campbell Grief Institute, and that includes bereavement and grief awareness training workshops for the modern workplace. I'm also an independent workplace mediator, and I advise organisations and employers on harassment and bullying issues and post-critical incident emotional support. So now you know which idiot is flying the plane today. This is the first in a series of podcasts under the working title of A Quiet Sadness, looking at some of the ways that society behaves towards the bereaved and some of the ways that society could improve that behaviour. And so this first podcast is around bereavement, grief and today's workplace. Let me say one or two things at the beginning that I believe in after working this field for so long. Grief is lifelong. There is no getting over a bereavement. There is no getting over the loss of a close loved one. It's about adjusting. That word adjustment. Adjusting to a life without the deceased. And that period of adjustment can be long and painful. Of course, it won't stop the bereaved going on to lead meaningful lives. But at the same time, they will still grieve for and miss the deceased loved one on an ongoing basis. It's also unique and idiosyncratic. And so therefore, I believe that we have to respect the innate wisdom of each bereaved person to grieve in a way and in a timescale that is right for them. And when you look at time off from work following a bereavement, some individuals may only need a few days off work. Many will need a lengthy period of absence. Some may come back straight away, almost the day after a funeral, and throw themselves into work in order to avoid that immense initial challenge of coming to terms with exactly what's happened. In other words, coming to terms with the fact that they won't see their loved one anymore, they won't hear the voice of their loved one anymore, they won't be able to touch or hug their loved one anymore. That's a huge challenge, and the emotional heart is always struggling to keep pace with the cognitive head as it deals with this challenge. So the initial immense difficulty for the workplace is to take on board that like stress and post-traumatic stress, grief is unique and singular. And so is its symptomatology. All of those feelings and emotions and reactions, they are unique. And so one-size-fits-all policies never really work, never really address the issues effectively. Grief is painful, it's distressing, highly emotional, full of sadness and anguish and yearning. But I should also say it is also natural 
It is the natural reaction of a human being to the death of a close loved one. If you love someone and you lose them, you grieve. So in a way, grief is not really the problem per se in itself. The problem lies with society, our current society, and how it deals with death and grief and its attitudes towards and treatment of the bereaved. And in my view, with a society that is in the main, and of course there are pockets of kindness and compassion and altruism up and down the United Kingdom, but generally with a society that is in the main fairly selfish, self-centred, me-orientated, look at me, solution-obsessed and characterised by short-termism and immediacy, I think it behaves very unkindly towards and impatiently with the bereaved. After the death of her loved one, society seems to grant the bereaved roughly three or four months of sanctioned grieving space before an invisible guillotine comes into play as if to say, you've had your grief time now, now it's time to get things back onto track. We need you and want you back to normal, whatever that is in the circumstances. And so overt displays of grief after this period are met with the trite and trivial platitudes such as time will heal, time to move on, you need to let go, surely you should be over this by now, it's been six months. All the sort of stupid things that people say to the bereaved after this three or four month period. And these together form what I have termed secondary hurts and injuries. And I have found over the years that these secondary hurts and injuries from society cause as much pain and anguish as the grief for the loss of the loved one. And some members of society go further. They switch the focus back onto themselves while they're listening and trying to support a bereaved person. I know how you feel. I know just how you feel. I lost my, and then you can insert whoever the person's lost two years ago. But the fact is, they don't know anything at all. They do not know how that person feels because they have suffered a unique bereavement and their grief is unique. And it is in that moment about the bereaved person, not the person listening. But of course, it all fits in with society's agenda. And if the displays of grief are experienced after a prolonged period, then society responds with an increase in those secondary hurts and injuries, ignoring the bereaved, crossing the road or the corridor to the other side, walking the other way, and attaching unhelpful labels such as stuck, abnormal and pathological. And so it is in today's workplace that society's impact on the bereaved can be significantly endorsed and reinforced or it can be confounded. I was going to go straight in and setting the scene but I want to just interject with a small observation and it actually comes from watching last week's episode of that popular crime drama, and I should say light crime drama, Death in Paradise, set in the Caribbean. Quite formulaic. I know that people will either love it or they won't. It's quite formulaic. It's about a buttoned up 
eccentric, straight-laced detective coming from Britain and trying to settle and solve crime in the more relaxed environment of a Caribbean island. But there was a lovely scene last week between the characters Sergeant Florence Cassell, played by Josephine Jobert, and the Commissioner Selwyn Patterson, played by the legendary Don Warrington from Rising Dump fame. And it's centred around the fact that in the script, that particular day was the first anniversary of Sergeant Cassell's fiancé's death. And it was beautifully handled. In the script, he took her to one side, acknowledging that he remembered this was the day of the anniversary of her fiancé's death, acknowledging that it would be very difficult and that if she wanted to take time off today and for the next few days, that would be actually okay, and offering himself as a compassionate listening ear if she felt like talking. I doubt very many people followed up on that, but I found that particular scene incredibly moving and very effective. My grandparents used to say, quite often in order to raise a laugh, that there were only two things that we could be sure of in life, death and taxes. It is therefore inevitable that an organisational's workforce will experience one or more bereavements each year. There will always be one or two members of staff that will experience a close bereavement each year. From the death of a partner, spouse, sibling or younger member of a family, through accidents, terminal illnesses or even horrendous deaths such as homicide or suicide, right through to the more anticipated deaths of elderly relatives and parents. And these days, many responsible organisations and employers are taking the mental health and welfare of their staff more seriously. The stress awareness and stress management training courses and training workshops of 10 or 12 years ago seem to have morphed into the new mental health first aid movement. And that's great. It's been retitled, it's under a new umbrella, but if it means that employers and organisations are taking notice of it, good. It doesn't really matter what umbrella we stand under. Perhaps that new umbrella has brought staff mental health and welfare more into focus, more into focus and awareness amongst other factors. But one issue, one area, and an, and an issue that nearly everybody will have to face and experience at some stage in their working lives, bereavement and grief seems to have been left behind when we're looking at training courses around mental health in the workplace. And when you take into account that most working people will spend more time at work than at home, sleeping, holidaying, socialising, and that we will probably spend more time with colleagues and peers, staff and managers than with our loved ones, family, relatives and friends, then how the bereaved are supported at work after the death of a close loved one or not supported at all, how managers and HR staff were there for them or not at all, how colleagues and staff and managers spoke to them saying the right things or the wrong things or perhaps saying nothing at all. That 
will stay with the bereaved forever for the rest of their lives cherishing and valuing that support and the compassionate gestures or painfully remembering the unhelpful or thoughtless contributions with horror and disgust and what makes the workplace attitudes and approaches to grief a little more perplexing is that while mental health approaches and training may well encompass things like stress and depression and trauma and post-traumatic stress grief is most likely to get a scant reference and yet grief will invariably have strong links with one or more of those four bereavement death is a major trigger catalyst for high levels of stress when I used to do stress management workshops many years ago I would open the workshop by asking the participants to do a little exercise that came from two American psychologists Thomas Holmes and Thomas Ra the idea was to give everybody an A4 sheet with a table on it on the left hand side were a list of events and experiences that would might happen in people's lives ranging from changes in shift patterns to Christmas to holidays parking tickets traffic violations taking on board extra study outside of work arguments at home arguments with managers right through to moving house separation divorce and bereavement the idea was that there would be a point score against each of these and then you had to total it up for how many you'd experienced in the last 12 months obviously the more points the more that you have to look out for and sit down and come to terms with what's happening well right up at the top of the list was bereavement 100 points more than anything else and isn't it strange how people with stress can end up going to their GP getting a sick note for stress and anxiety or depression any any one of those three and any combination and they can be off work for six months on full pay and six months on half pay but if a person goes and just purely and simply has a sick note for grief or says that they are suffering from grief then more often than not it's a short space of time and quite often cases of depression could well have originated from historical intense feelings that have been bottled up for years perhaps feelings of intense grief hitherto unaddressed and of course many bereavements many deaths are highly traumatic in their manner in their suddenness and shock in their physicality and sometimes their violence and in the suffering of both the bereaved and the deceased prior to the death many bereaved clients I've worked with over the years are not only experiencing grief but also suffering from stress or post-traumatic stress at the same time yet grief and grief awareness training for many organizations and employers remains in a box file stored high up on a shelf labeled good idea but not a priority is that down to lack of resources a lack of willingness lack of empathy are the decision makers who hold the purse strings for training courses are they not yet experienced in bereavement or is death the ultimate taboo topic 
If we look at two of those, the lack of empathy and decision makers not having experienced bereavement, these two can be linked. After all, a need may well not be seen or recognised, a crisis never really understood, distress not empathised with until one experiences similar circumstances in person. When doing a little research for this podcast, I revisited the stories of a Chris Reed, at the time head of Go Payroll in America, and also Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer at the time of Facebook, who both appear to have experienced epiphanies in the aftermath of personal bereavements. If we look at Chris Reed in particular, prior to his loss, Chris Reed and Go Payroll appears to have been of the view that personal problems and issues should be left at home leaving staff to clock in for a good day's work and forget about it, keep their mind off it. Get payroll's bereavement policy stipulated precisely three days. Three days of bereavement leave. But in 1992, things changed when Chris Reed lost his daughter due to ovarian cancer. And on coming back to work, he admitted to a real struggle to even focus or concentrate or make decisions and just manage, only able to spend a few hours a day for some time. Tragically, he lost his wife in 2015 and appears to have experienced the same symptomatology but with additional intensity. Go Payroll's bereavement policy changed drastically and leans more towards bereaved staff taking off as much time away from work as they actually need. And as Chris Reed states, I'm not going to add to their stress. I'm not going to penalise them for things they can't control. And Cheryl Sandberg of Facebook, she lost her husband suddenly in 2015 and has had the same change of heart as Reed, bringing a much more compassionate approach to the organisation's bereavement policy. I encountered a similar change in attitudes when working in lecturing in higher education. At one time, I was part of an institution's internal committee that was lobbying for increased staff support, and that included the introduction of a staff counselling service and a more human approach to staff bereavement needs. In a meeting with one of the institution's directors, also one of the key decision makers and whose hand was firmly wrapped around the organisational purse, I raised the topic of improved support for distressed and stressed staff. The The director's reply was, and I quote, and I still remember it, if it's an internal problem, then they've got HR and managers to go to. If it's an external or personal problem, then they can go to their GP or other sources, it's not our responsibility. I think I was too stunned at the time by this crass statement to respond spontaneously in the moment. Thankfully, we appear to have progressed to a generally acceptable view of what happens at work affects home and what happens at home affects work. Sadly, that wasn't the end of the story because a few months later, tragically, the director's teenage daughter committed suicide and he subsequently engaged in a very lengthy set of counselling support. By the end of that year, the institution had its first 
staff counselling service. Though the overall work situation has improved a little, many organisations and employers still have bereavement policies that officially demonstrate a somewhat parsimonious approach to bereavement leave. Three to five days is still a fairly standard bracket, and often it goes on to specify the deceased's identity to qualify for that bereavement leave. In other words, the deceased has to be a parent or a spouse, a partner or a child, perhaps even a sibling. But what about grandparents? Especially as in the case for many individuals, the grandparents have raised that individual in childhood due to problems with the parents in the family. What about cousins who have become more like brothers and sisters? And aunts and uncles who have done what the grandparents were doing? And what about work colleagues that you've worked alongside for 15, 20, 25 years? And what about bereavement through miscarriages and stillbirths and terminations? Those members of staff who have had a miscarriage or a stillbirth or have had to do the heartachingly choice of a social or medical termination. Last year saw the introduction in April of the new 2020 Parental Bereavement Leave Regulations, also known as Jack's Law. It allows for two weeks of paid parental bereavement leave. It states that, and it applies to a all employees who lose a child under the age of 18 and or who have a stillbirth after 24 weeks of pregnancy. But where does that leave employees who lose a child at the age of 19 or 20 or 21? Is there really any difference between losing a child of 17 and losing a child of 19 years away at university or even a child at the age of 30? It's still the child that they have carried around in their tummy for 40 weeks prior to birth. And what about for miscarriages under 24 weeks, many of which occur between 10 and 16 weeks? Or the medical and social terminations? Grief does not lessen or be absent because of the decisions made. There is no statutory right to bereavement or compassionate leave at all, except for those parental bereave leave regulation scenarios. There's no statute right to paid leave for preparing for or arranging or attending a funeral. Of course, behind the bare bones of the organisation's official bereavement policy, we will most likely encounter a supplementary stance of, well, we'll leave it to the individual discretion of their manager or the discretion of the individual manager or the HR business partner. Of course, that shifts the responsibility from the organisation onto the individual managers and those HR business partners or managers, immediately leading to a number of questions in my mind around, well, what are the dynamics of the relationship between the bereaved member of staff and his or her manager be like and will that affect uh, the decision? Is that the line manager, the departmental manager or the scene manager? Will there be three or four managers that have to come together? And are they all in harmony with their approaches to grief? It is feasible that organisational departmental needs 
may still influence the decision. And of course, the main potential stumbling block for me in these scenarios is just what training, what bereavement and grief awareness training have all these managers and HRFSRs received? How can we expect them to make a compassionate yet effective decision without that training? Of course, there are now available a host of guidance leaflets and pamphlets on approaches to bereavement and grief, good practices, etc., from a variety of bereavement groups and employee-oriented organisations. Employers and organisations can access these and get supplies of them. They're a good idea. They're better than nothing. But today's workplace is full of helpful literature on every subject that could affect the workforce, on stress, mental health, mental health first aid, bullying and harassment, radicalisation, healthy eating, diet, nutrition, environmental issues, green issues, travel issues, mindfulness, equal opportunities, to name but a few. And if we have that literature, is the literature read fully and more importantly absorbed and understood, particularly by those who it affects and can influence the most? I believe that such literature can never match the impact of a face-to-face -face awareness workshop encompassing the imparting of knowledge, the exchange of views and concerns of the participants as they learn from each other what works and what doesn't work, and then the offering of tips and hints for good practice by an experienced professional in that relevant field, in this case, bereavement and grief. An organisational policy should, in my view, not only provide information about what is possible, what is not, what can be done and what can't, flow charts for accessing and using the policy, but it should also set the scene and provide the framework for the organisation's philosophy and beliefs and commitment to the particular subject area, like a micro-mission statement. Is the bereavement policy a compassionate and caring approach to supporting bereaved members of staff? Is it comprehensive? Or is it still a leave policy with a few helpful tips thrown in? Is it a genuine commitment or a cosmetic ticky box exercise? Does it even mention that absolutely vital word grief or does it just stick to bereavement on its own? But an organisational approach needs to be more than a piece of paper and a pledge for individual discretion. That is why in my view good comprehensive training is essential for managers and HR officers if they're going to be able to ex exercise that discretionary decision compassionately and effectively, both for the organisation and the individual bereaved person. Perhaps all staff need the training, never mind managers and HR. After all, when a bereaved member of staff returns to work after the loss of a loved one, the majority of their interpersonal exchanges will be with peers and colleagues. And few know what to say and what to do, and more often than not, end up saying nothing at all, or walking away, or crossing the road or the corridor to the other side. 
In 2014, ACAS published the outcome of some research that they had sponsored, carried out by three bereavement research groups on individual employees who had, in the five years prior to the research project, returned to work after the death of a close loved one. If I remember rightly, about 24 to 30% of those canvassed, and there were thousands that were canvassed, stated that their experiences had been terrible, had been awful. Unsympathetic management, trite comments, unhelpful comments, impatience shown, colleagues avoiding them, general not understanding what the bereaved person was going through at all. All the usual rubbish, impatience and thoughtless stuff that society throws at the bereaved after that three or four month societally sanctioned period elapses. Sadly, because it came out at the same time as the first independence vote for Scottish independence, I think it got lost in the news. Incredibly sad. How people react in the workplace was summed up to me by a client that I worked with about four years ago. My client, a lovely guy called John, late 40s. He was the manager of a big stores department in a local engineering firm. He had responsibility for 24 staff, mainly men, and three female admin staff. He'd just lost his father-in-law, and that came after losing his own father six months prior. And he had 12 sessions with me. He was off work for four months. And what characterised it was that, on the one hand, he was struggling with his grief for both his father and father-in-law. He respected both greatly and had really good relationships with both father and father-in-law. So he'd lost two very significant figures in a short space of time. But he was also mixing that with an embarrassment at being off for the first time in his working life. He was a typical Northeast male, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. Little male, chauvinist, strong men, etc., etc. When we started to reach the end of those 12 sessions, there was a sense that he felt okay, ready to go back to work. But as we explored his return to work in a session, it was clear that he was panic-stricken, not over shedding a tear or whatever about his late father and late father-in-law, but he was panic-stricken over how people would react. Absolutely horror-stricken that people might come up to him and start giving him lots of hugs and asking him to explain what happened and how they died and to go into great detail. All of his fears. So we then explored these fears and I suggested to him would it be helpful if we looked at what would be okay for people saying to him and behaving and what wouldn't be okay? What would he want? What we wouldn't want? And so we went through all of the things he wanted. He was okay, perhaps with a hug from three female members, but from his male members of staff, maybe a hand on his shoulder or a handshake and just basically, how are you? Good to see you back, etc. Do's and don'ts. And then I suggested, what about ringing up your HR manager, who seems to have been very supportive while you've been off, and just tell her, this is what I fear, this, is, this would work for me and this wouldn't work for me. When he came back for the next session, 
he'd actually rung the HR manager and she thought this was a fantastic idea. And so having received that list of what would work and what wouldn't work for John, she immediately contacted the overall senior manager and held an open meeting with all 24 staff and the three admin staff and told everybody when John was coming back and what would be helpful, what wouldn't, what they could say and what John didn't want them to say. I gather later that John found out from one of his close friends that had attended that meeting that once all of the staff had been told what they could say, what they couldn't say, what they could do, what they couldn't do, there was a huge collective sigh of relief. And so his return to work was quite smooth from that point of view. So if we're looking at putting together training around bereavement and grief awareness for today's workplace, what possibly should we include in there? I would respectfully suggest the following should be included. First of all, the emphasis on the uniqueness of grief, the idiosyncratic singular experience that every death is unique, every relationship is unique, every backdrop story is unique. The one-size-fits-all policies and approaches never really works. And so being led by each individual bereavement person, trying to get that message across. And a little bit of information about some of the more complex bereavements. You know, we look at grief overall and the standard symptomatology that may or may not occur. But there are some more complex bereavements that bring with them extra layers of dynamics and nuances and supplemental losses that can affect the intensity and the distress of grief, particularly homicide and suicide, which are the two most complex bereavements. The midlife orphan, when somebody in their 30s and 40s and 50s loses their second parent and they become an orphan and the impact that that has. And of course, the big one, the death of one's mother, the person who carried you around in her tummy for 40 weeks and that kind of spiritual bond between the two. And perhaps some background on the impact of miscarriages and stillbirths and terminations. Perhaps also a little focus on the importance of anniversaries, the anniversary of the death and the funeral, but also, depending on who you've lost, Mother's Day and Father's Day and birthdays and Christmas. And of course, a lot of people think that once you get the first anniversary, all these anniversaries out of the way, it will become easier. Yes, for some people it does get easier. But for many, the realisation that although they've got the first anniversary out of the way, they now face not only the second year, but for the rest of their lives without their lost loved one. And it could well be that the second year is harder and more difficult than the first. And if we hearken back to things like homicide and suicide, but also car crashes, accidental deaths, and then I suppose things like unexpected deaths, particularly amongst older people, there inevitably will be an inquest. And an inquest is a horrendous ordeal for the bereaved. It's not a trial, but it feels sometimes like a trial. And it's held in a building that resembles a court, very formal, 
very legalized. And there are, of course, witnesses and testimonies and an outcome. It really is a challenging experience and perhaps a little bit of background on inquests to help support members of staff when they come back. And I think you could also include a little bit about anticipatory grief, the anticipatory grief experience. This is the experience of grief in anticipation of death after a loved one receives a terminal illness diagnosis. So when one of our members of the family is diagnosed with a terminal illness, that both the dying person and the family go into an anticipatory grief experience. And an experience that has similarities to post-death conventional grief, but also many differences, and is as painful and as intense as conventional post-death conventional grief. And many bereaved staff, when they have actually suffered the bereavement, are going to be dealing not only with post-death conventional grief, but the after-effects of anticipatory grief at the same time. And then, of course, including good practice suggestions. What to say, what words to use, what not to say, what words to avoid, the trite and trivial comments to avoid, and the helpful and compassionate comments and words to use, and how to take your cue from the bereaved person. And at the same time, understanding the impact of those secondary hurts and injuries that society regularly bestows on the bereaved through the stupid things that are said and not said. And then I think if you're going to do a, a, a workshop like this, then there has to be something around good listening skills and empathy. These are not just counselling or therapy tools. They are tools that are incredibly valuable in today's workplace, particularly for managers and supervisors and team leaders and HR staff. So in summary, I would say yes, a policy. Yes to leaflets and pamphlets. It all helps. But I would suggest a stock take and review, an objective but hopefully compassionate stock take and review of an organisation's policy. Just to see does it include the word grief? And to look at the amount of bereavement days that are stated. Most say three to five days, but actually that's not a statutory requirement. I guess you could put anything in that title. Would there really be any issue with just granting two weeks of bereavement leave in all close bereavement situations? Not just simply the 2020 parental bereaved leave regulations for a young child under the age of 18 and a stillbirth 24 weeks or more. And when looking at who's died, consider grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. And what about including those employees who have had a miscarriage under 24 weeks and, and terminations? Yes, society looks on social terminations in particular and attaches the stigma of shame to it, but for that, for many, the decision to go down that road will have been incredibly difficult and the impact will resonate for the rest of their lives. And even though society still feels it, it's a freely taken decision, grief will still exist in the aftermath. 
And why not include anticipatory grief in the policy and organisational approach? Is it possible to grant leave officially for those people whose loved ones are near the end in a hospital ward or a hospice? Is it possible to grant them two weeks leave in such circumstances? And of course, consider bereavement and grief awareness training for managers and HR, if not a rollout for all staff. But remember, it must be delivered by an experienced professional who has got experience in that field. I've always felt in training that I know when somebody is experienced in the field or when somebody is just doing it from a book. And the final thing is access to counselling. Many organisations obviously have access to telephone counselling, telephone lines, etc, etc. But I think I've found over my 27 years that the vast majority of counselling clients prefer to see people face to face. And there's less take up of telephone counselling there is on face to face. But I think we also have to remember that grief counselling is a very, very specialist field of counselling. Many counsellors and counselling organisations say they deal with an, uh, bereavement and grief and they list it in as one of the areas that they focus on, on their websites, and some even say that they specialise. Remember that a specialist in any field has to qualify for that title in three ways. They have to have a minimum acceptable level of qualifications in their actual practice work, i.e. counselling, therapy or coaching. But they also have to have a significant level of training and qualifications in the relevant field that they're specialising in. And they have to have a substantial body of client casework in that particular field. So when looking and getting access for your staff for bereavement, it's about making sure that you get good experience grief counselling for them. And all I would say to finish this podcast is just to remember that how the bereaved, how bereaved members of staff are treated when they come back into the workplace will be remembered for the rest of their lives. It can be a wonderfully kind, compassionate and supportive experience or it can be a very, very thoughtless and horrendous experience. Thank you for listening.